Accenture more than for the last 20 years for me and probably 25 years for Rebecca. Um, so it actually kind of feels like home. You, you know, we enjoy the fellowship with you guys, uh, the relationship we have here. Uh, and you know, like the sign of when you enter Chavilla Valley, welcome home. You know, so I really like it because it does feel like home. Um, so uh, before I share the message, I want to share a little bit, you know, uh, a little update on what's happening with us as a family, uh, with Rebecca's house and situation in Ukraine. Uh, for people who do not know who we are, we are uh, missionaries to Ukraine, or more like Rebecca's missionary to Ukraine. If you notice my accent, I am Ukrainian. I was born in Ukraine. Um, but right now, we are what I call missionaries in exile, and I'll explain a little bit why. Um, uh, in November of 2021, Rebecca, uh, we were in Ukraine at that time. Um, uh, we had a medical emergency. Rebecca had to be, we had to like evacuate Ukraine before the war started. And when we got here, uh, doctors find out that Rebecca had a rare type of cancer. And, you know, it was shock to us. Certainly, we did not know how it was going to influence our lives. And while we were still kind of trying to recover from everything that news entailed, Russia invaded Ukraine, invaded my country, and started, you know, this unjust and unprovoked war. So we we're here, and we, you know, for a while now, and uh, and because of the war, because of the sickness, and uh, I'm just really thankful for you guys for that you are, you know, still praying for us, supporting us, working with us through this, you know, valley of the shadow of death and darkness. Um, and yeah, still standing in prayer and supporting us while we're, you know, trying to kind of get our heads straight, you know, figure out what's our next step, which we'll also talk about. Anyway, so um, that's about us. So I wanted to probably invite Rebecca a little bit to share the news with her house, how it's been happening, how it's been going for the last year. Yeah, I just want to say thank you too so much for your prayers. It is yeah, such a gift and a blessing to be able to be here and even to have the strength to share. It's hard sometimes to say exactly when people ask what's going on. You want to say stable, and, you know, when we talk about the war in Ukraine, yeah, it's stable. It's It was really bad when you found out the news that Russia invaded Ukraine. It was really bad to find out we have cancer, but it's still not great. There's still, you know, bombs that are coming in. And the same kind of with fighting this cancer. I kind of see it like a a battle and it, today's the Super Bowl, so I was like thinking sport, <laughs> you know. Like a, you know, it's not obviously a game, but it is there are victories and there are um disappointments. And so I have had in the last six months three different uh, major scans, MRI, C T scan and endoscopy. Um victoriously in October something that the surgical oncologist said was impossible or very highly unlikely. This, the uh, tumor shrunk away from uh, a vein that was thrombosed in my spleen that was causing problems. And so he himself, I, you know, I looked in the eye when I said it, that tumor, he said it won't shrink away from there. And even if it does, that vein will not reopen. And that vein did reopen. And so it recanalized. I looked at him and I, he said, yeah, I thought it was highly unlikely. I said, do you believe in miracles? And, you know, he's under his mask and said, Yes. <laughs> so uh, so that was a miracle, and that was a, a really a highlight. And we were even thinking, I talked to my oncologist and thought, even with the tumor growth, maybe we'd be able to make a trip overseas. But I had a scan in, um, I still had the varices, which caused the initial bleeding and the initial diagnosis. And so um, because of the tumors, it creates new veins in my stomach that are varices. And so I had an endoscopy and a scan in this, the endoscopy was January 5th. And unfortunately, those varices are still there. And they were, he used the word, the gastroenterologist, they are friable. And so I just had um, I get a shot every 28 days, which is, is part of the therapy for the, to shrink, try and shrink the tumors and help the, um, my, with the symptoms of the tumors. And he said, yes, it's um, not good, and they can re-bleed any time. So a re-bleed is almost, you know, as high a risk as just even having the cancer. So that is an area I really need prayer for. Um, obviously, travel is not possible with having those varices. And 
there until you actually they can there is some treatment for them but for me he they said it while I s there are still tumors those varices are still going to be an issue so um, my oncologist said you know they're not just going to disappear magically and I said well I guess that's an area to pray then because I will be praying that they will and so we believe in the power of the Lord and his healing power and we've seen him move in my body and so I do have I deal with a lot of fatigue I deal with um, issues but I have a lot of strength too and I believe it's because of such the support and prayer that I get and so we are in this battle we are fighting it and um, just trusting in the Lord for his his um, hand to work in uh, my body and in our the plans of what we have as a family that we believe the Lord is directing us in. So thank you for your prayers, and yeah, I look forward to sharing more testimonies of God moving and healing and touching my body. So, thank you. Yeah. So um, we do ask for your prayers in this area, and I mean, actually, concerning our lives, uh, not only this area. Pray for many more areas for us. Um, uh, right now, I'm planning on a trip to Ukraine uh, at the beginning of uh, end of March, beginning of April. Uh, I'm gonna start a Bible uh, course, three months Bible course. I usually that's what I did before we had to come back here. Um, uh, and so uh, it's gonna be in Ternopil, Ukraine. That's where our missionary base located. And the best thing about it is that um, I did not really initiate this course. The people actually on the ground in Ukraine asked me to run it. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, I shared here before how proud I am of Ukrainian church. You know, during the war, they really showed what Christ like be. Well, my English disappears. Anyway, so uh, church, uh, Ukrainian church, really impressed me by the way they handled the crisis, right? They stood with people. They went to the hottest spots uh, trying to help soldiers and help uh, people, you know, many times protecting innocent with their lives. And some of the people that I knew lost their lives. Um, but at the same time, you know, during the war, and I have no idea how it's going to happen, really, because, uh, you know, electricity in Ukraine, because Russia bombed a lot of uh, electrical... Uh, facilities producing uh, electrical producing facilities and so uh, the electricity is there only like few hours a day so uh, there's almost every day there is sirens and you know bombing war warning so I have no idea how it's going to happen but for me it was such an amazing kind of I was amazed that even though in those circumstances people in Ukraine they want to study the word of God they invited me to you know kind of start this uh, Bible course. I'm going to be there for two weeks uh, um, uh, yeah, at the beginning of April. Um, Annabella, most likely my daughter, she's most likely going to go with me. And but also at the same time, if you were here two weeks ago with us, I mean, if you were two weeks ago here in the church, you remember my other daughter was sharing about another missionary trip that she's going to in, to Africa. So it's going to happen all at the same time. So we really, really need your prayers because Rebecca is going to be alone with. Uh, Nathaniel, Elizabeth is going to be in Africa. I'm going to be in Ukraine with Annabella. So I appreciate your prayer. And certainly we appreciate prayers for Ukraine, right? So I don't know if you keep eye on the news. R Russia's preparing new offensive. You know, uh, the amount of death and destruction th this war causes is just unimaginable, right? So it's a uh, pray that, you know, Putin will get out of Ukraine. He has no dealings there, no reason for it. But, I mean, uh, there's probably close to 2,000 people on both sides die every day in soldiers' deaths. I mean, so please pray for that. Um, and the latest things with us, uh, we because we've been uh, stateside for a while now, we're thinking, how will our ministry look like while in the United States? And we're considering many, many things and praying and you know, wondering, God, what we're going to do. And so uh, the la latest thing that we kind of, trying to move forward. If any of you heard of Viva Montana, you might have heard of it. It's, um, it's a big uh, um, a youth with a mission base uh, in Lakeside, Montana. And we start slowly kind of considering and processing, maybe moving there, joining them there, because they have outreaches to Ukraine all the time. And I thought, you know, that's something that I can join them in. And also, they have a, a Bible study department, I guess, uh, that I can be joining. Um, but we are considering it only. We're not really doing anything yet because 
you know, uh, after talking with people in Montana, we find out that there, there is no housing available at all. Like, it really, if God calls you to Montana, they said, then he needs to provide housing for you. So, anyway, so we are s considering it, and if you know anybody in the area of Kalispell or Lakeside, you know, with reasonable housing for five people and a dog, <laughs> please, you know, come to me after the service. Anyway, so that's a little bit about us. Uh, and um, I just want to say something about the worship team. I really like this last song, and maybe at the end of the service, I would ask the worship team to do it again. Um, uh, one of the reasons, because I feel in this song this certain hope for the future, right? certain vision for the future, and it's something that's been in my heart for a while. Today I'm going to be speaking with you guys. Uh, maybe some things that might be, you might feel a little bit harsh or something like this. That's not my desire to, you know, be harsh or something like this. It's my consideration. I am, as an outsider, right, many times when we come to the United States, we think like, it's like jumping in the Cold War, right? We are all in one environment, you know, and then later on, you come in and life here is totally different, you know. So it gives us sometimes a different perspective. But, uh, and it had to do, it has to do with the hope for the future and the vision for the future that we have. So, on to the preaching. So, a few days before New Year, I went, oh, and one thing I want to say. Uh, so, Rebecca, she's in school teaching, um, uh, what is this? Communication course, right? So she's teaching communication course. And one time I was uh, sobbing for her. Uh, she was sick or something like this. And, so, uh, and uh, so I was just like running videos. I have no idea. I'm not a really good communicator. But I was watching video, and uh, this teacher on the video, he says, one of the worst or like the lame way to do public speaking is just reading, <laughs> you know, from your paper. And so today, as I was preparing, I remember that I'm like, well, I guess I'm that type of a guy. <laughs> I'll have to read. So please bear with me as I'm going to be reading it. Anyway, so a few days uh, before New Year, I went with my daughter to bookstore. Uh, it was Barnes & Nobles in Spokane. And actually, I was really surprised by the amount of people there. 30 minutes, it was 30 minutes before closing, and by the amount of books there. Uh, it was like, and variety of topics was just incredible. There were plenty of political books from both left and right. There were books like Trump is my president, and another one like right next to it is, you know, I love Barack Obama. So, like, it's a good, it's a good thing when, you know, you see in bookstore those types of books, you understand that freedom of speech is doing fine in America. That is great. You know, the same, uh, I think, looking at that bookstore, you can say that freedom of religion is doing okay as well. Right next to the, uh, what is it, self-help, or no, between self-help and healthy living shelves, there is like a whole bunch of shelves with Bibles and Christian literature, you know. So I thought, as long as we have those books on the shelves, if you can go and pick up Bible freely and, you know, get a good dictionary or, you know, on the Christian, li some literature on Christian living, that's good. You know, I, I thought, that's, I think, at least one of the signs that the freedom of religion in the United States is doing fine. <coughs> um, we're not experiencing real persecution if those shelves are full, right? Uh, strangely, the only, strangely, the only type of literature I couldn't find there was philosophy books. And I'm like, what? Philosophers are marginalized? You know, something like this? I'm like, I was shocked why I couldn't find any because I, I like philosophy. But for sure, as Christians, we don't experience persecution here in a full sense of the word. Um, now, Christianity is certainly losing the central place in this culture, uh, the place it has enjoyed for many years, right? Um, as I said, the Bibles and all the Christian literature was uh, placed between self-help and healthy living uh, literature, right? As if Christianity or Bible is a manual for self-improvement, right? Don't think about Bible or Christianity as self-improvement because it's much more than that on so many different and profound ways. Um, um, yeah, so, but the thing is, Christianity was removed from this central place, and as Ukrainian saying goes, the holy place is never empty. Like, analyzing and thinking about my experience in, uh, in that bookstore, uh, 
I saw that some other things took that central place in life of America, right? So uh, there was like most of the books that I saw there were about horoscopes, magic, mysticism, and stuff like this. And I was like, uh, actually noticed a pair of books that totally blew my mind off. Like there was some kind of like magic something, you know, Right next to it is a course in physics, you know, like two books together. And I'm like, what is happening? I thought if the, you know, fathers of atheism would see that, they would probably go crazy, you know, like it's so uncanny. Those two things don't go together. But the thing is, science tried to replace uh, the central uh, story or central part of American life, and it failed, right? It does not provide answer to questions why, right? It can answer questions um, how, but not exactly for what purpose. And so that place was taken by mysticism and you know, magic and uh, stuff like this. So, and that's where we find ourselves. You know, and it's not a really comfortable place, maybe for us as a Christian to be. And so we're desiring Jesus' quick return. Now, first of all, I want to say that it's a normal uh, feeling, like normal desire, like if, if we're going to look at the book of Revelation, at the very end, it's Revelation 22, 17, there is a thing, PowerPoint maybe there, no? Is there PowerPoint? No. Revelation 22, 17, if you can open your Bibles and fo follow along, it says, so it's the end of the Bible, right? It's about 19, no, 90 AD, and it says there, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let one who fishes take the free gift of water of life. So the church in the first century to whom the book of Revelation was written faced marginali marginalization, persecution, death, poverty, rejection, and no wonder that they turned their hope in the second coming. So our desire for Jesus' quick return is understandable. And right now, a lot of people say that Jesus is coming soon. Are they wrong? You know, are they right? Um, I was sharing kind of the same message um, uh, at the retreat uh, uh, at another Vivant base, and I said, uh, <laughs> don't throw rocks at me, please. So I said, chances are, Jesus is not, it was 31st of January, so you know. So I said, chances are, Jesus is not coming tomorrow. <laughs> no. And uh, so, he didn't come on the 1st of January, as we can see, and, but it was really hard to do it, right? But I was just trying to poke around and try to help people change perspective about it a little bit. So are they right? Are they wrong, these people? I don't really know, but Jesus said that we do not know the time or the day of his coming. We're certainly closer to his return by about 2,000 years, right? But I think it's a mistake to make assumption either way. He's too far or he's too close. So two things today I want to look at. So uh, one of them is let's not mistake the loss of influence that Christianity enjoyed in this culture as a persecution, right? And I think many books are written today about the change in the culture we experience and culture wars in US, and the issue, I think, is actually really complex, and I would not want to simplify it. However, I think it's uh, good to talk about it. And one of the ways I find helpful uh, uh, about what happened in the United States uh, is an explanation given by Dutch Sheet. I don't know if you know who he is. He's a preacher, popular kind of Christian voice right now. Uh, uh, he has heart for this nation, it's obvious, uh, and he has some kind of prophetic prayer minister or something like this. I do not know. I do not know him personally, but I did listen to this part of his uh, devotional one day. And so he makes uh, two points about why U.S. is where it is. Um, so before that, though, we can look at the Mark 16, 15, 16, and compare it with Matthew 28, 19, 20. It, yep, there, thank you. Um, so it, Mark says... He said to them, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. 
and then Matthew 28 says, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to very <coughs> end of the age. So if you pay attention to these two verses, you notice that the biggest difference is this word disciple, right? And so uh, that sheet makes this kind of comparison uh, of what has happened in the United States based on these two scriptures. Um, and there's a quote, it's long actually, three PowerPoints or something like this. So uh, I'm going to read and you can try following up there. So the great charismatic movement of the late 60s through the early 80s, which included the Jesus People Movement, saw tens of millions of people saved around the world. It was a wonderful example of Mark 16 occurring with a great momentum, a significant revival. Sorry, I ran out of breath. <laughs> um, however, there was a little understanding of our calling to do Matthew 28. The minimal awareness of discipling that did exist was limited to the discipling of individuals who came to Christ, not the discipling nations, societies, or cultures. Discipling nations involves and includes government, education, and all other societal institutions. It is not dictating or forcing of God's laws upon people and nations, but rather teaching and implementing his ways and principles at every level and every sector of society. Salvation opens the heart and will to this, which is why it must occur first. When people are born again, the Holy Spirit writes God's laws in their hearts, making them open to his truth, even possessing a strong desire to find it and pursue it. Also, their conscience is alive and active. When a nation experiences significant revival, the portion of the populace affected by it does not have to be forced to implement God's will and ways. They desire to do his will and obey him, but they must be taught, retrained, and their children must be as well. If this does not occur, Satan attempts to counteract the revival by infusing wrong thinking, ideas, philosophies, uh, uh, etc. into the culture. Sadly, during the Jesus People movement and charismatic movement of the 70s, Christians did Mark 16 only. Though millions of people were saved, humanists, secularists, and atheists were busy doing their version of Matthew 28, discipling this nation. We saved individuals, they discipled the nation. We preached the gospel, unbelievers taught dogmas and doctrines. We went to church, they went to our schools and universities. We gathered on weekends, they gathered all week. We enjoyed Christian TV, they made movies, programs, and eventually took over the industry. We sang and worshiped at church. They took over the airways and discipled a generation with their music. The result? We experienced one of the greatest revivals in history and lost our nation. And here's a little example of what he means by that. Uh, I don't know, is it there? No, can you do next? Yeah, there you go. So um, here's an example of this. This is a book that our friends gave us. It is called An Illustrated Book of Bad Arguments. Learn the, last, uh, learn the Last Art of Making Sense. And when I was preparing and reading this uh, title, I'm like, were the friends making, uh, like giving me a hint, like you make no sense, buddy? <laughs> like, uh, anyway, so, um, uh, you know, but in any case, this is book on logic and how to spot logical fallacies. It's geared towards children, as you can see, and possibly men after 40, like me. So um, I, read, I read only two chapters, uh, uh, you know, of this book. Uh, and uh, I stopped to think about them. And uh, why? Because the two examples in the first two chapters of bad arguments used there uh, are geared towards or against religion and conservatism. Uh, which would be fine because I'm pretty sure there's many uh, enough material for that. But what bothered me the most is that those two chapters commit logical fallacies and use bad logic to prove their point, right? So um, author seemingly had two goals in mind. One, to teach logic, more or less, right? And then another one is to make 
children question their religious conservative parents. Uh, but it is not, you know, I don't want to critique the author today, uh, but critique us as a church. We allowed secular people to teach our children uh, everything, right, from two plus two to what's right and wrong, and then expect that our children will grow having godly character and keeping their faith. But it's quite impossible. Right. The second thing that uh, that sheet is pointing out is the use of word ecclesia in the New Testament. Right. So it usually it is translated as an assembly of believers, which is good, and or people who are called out. Both good translations. Excuse me. But this word word in Roman Empire would also mean an assembly of people convened at the public place of the council for purpose of deliberating many or and many times governing or legislating laws for the city. And in his view, in Dutch Sheet's view, we failed this part of being ecclesia, ecclesia for this country. And we feel uncomfortable, right? That I think it's understandable. We don't like things that happen around us and have little hope looking to the future. But the truth is we are at war. Bible speaks of, of this whole world or dimension that, have, that we have really little knowledge about and its functions or its being, right, the spiritual world. From the very beginning, we meet angels of different kinds and powers that try to lead humanity away from God. And the New Testament only serves to confirm that. We are part of the war in which we participate by prayer, faith, and sometimes our everyday actions. But it's not easy or comfortable. But war never is, right? We might experience victories or losses, and losses in the war always hurt. Me following the war in Ukraine, you know, when Ukrainian going in counteroffensive, I'm all like, yes, yes, guys, you can do it. And when we lost territory on, or seeing people killed or cities destroyed, it's hard. Losses always hurt. And though Jesus won the battle, oh no, sorry, Jesus won the war, we might still lose some battles. Okay, and so, this, uh, so that was my first point, right? Think about it as my process of everything I experienced for last year, my thinking about the church. So the second point today is the premature expectation of Jesus' return. As I mentioned above, apocalyptic and eschatological view, views on today, uh, they pre permeate the church, right? Not only today, though. It's actually happened from the very beginning. Here, uh, I don't know if you can see, here is a list uh, from Wikipedia, the easiest source you can find. So this is a 46 predictions of Jesus' return, which didn't happen, obviously, um, uh, from the 500 AD all the way to 2021. And the thing is, 21 of those predictions happened only in the last 120 years, at the beginning of this century and the hundreds of the previous. Of previous, and that's really actually quite quite interesting, and I think it's important for us to recognize that and take kind of look down the history. How did the church view the second coming of Jesus throughout at least 20th century, right? So, um, just you know, recently I was listening to some preacher, and he made this statement that was like really interesting to me. He says um, that. Every generation of Christians thought that they were the last generation before Jesus' return. Every generation of Christians thought that they were the last generation before Jesus' return. He said he got saved in the 70s, and people around him were saying, Jesus is going to come. It's, he's close. It's soon. He says, I'm still here, right? Uh, and to prove it, so we went with Rebecca to a retreat uh, to pray, actually thinking about, you know, praying about our next step. And I found a book there that's called, I need to find the name of it. It's called Armageddon, Oil and the Middle East Crisis. Guess when it was written? 1974. And then they had to update it in 1990. 
right? Jesus didn't return, so they had to update it. I do not know if they have a new edition of it, but, but it is really interesting and important to recognize it. It's not a bad desire, like I said from the beginning. I think it's a proper desire, but we need to understand how the church viewed through the history. So people thought that the Second World War was the end. People thought that the First World War was the end as well. They, they even had their own Armageddon, if you do not know. In 1918, English uh, fought Turks, English and Egyptians fought Turks in a valley of Megiddo. If it sounds familiar, because that's the same valley that is mentioned in the book of Revelation, where the, the final battle of Armageddon, Armageddon will happen. So I'm wondering if the soldiers who were going down into that battle in 1919, pretty sure they, some of them were thinking, this is it. This is it. This is Armageddon. <coughs> anyway, so, and it is the same throughout the history. It is the same story. And even the very first generation of Christians believed that they were the last generation. And I, actually, when they were like seeing that Jesus is not coming, so it's first century, imagine, first century, you know, Christianity, and they were, when, when they saw that Jesus is not coming, they actually complained to Apostle Peter. And Peter, in uh, 1 Peter 4, 7, he confirms that. Is there, isn't it there? I don't know if I put it there. Anyway, he confirms it. He says, yes, this is the last days. But, and he says, the end is near. But at the same time, in the second Peter 3, 4, and then 8, 9, uh, so chapter 3, verse 4, and then 8, 9, uh, he gives a perspective saying that our understanding of time and God's purposes is not perfect. And it is, in fact, it is not. We do not understand. Uh, Peter says that the time that Jesus is not coming to give chance and opportunity for many more people to get saved. And I'm really glad that Jesus gave that chance, right? Right. It's an opportunity. It's not wasted time. It's opportunity for many more people to come to Christ. Okay, so here are things for us to consider, right? All of the people of the first generation died, Christian generation, right? In the first century, they died. And the truth was that after they died, they met with Jesus. And the end for them was really near, right? was really close. And every generation is the last generation before they meet Jesus. You know, um, the current generation uh, has only one life to live. And the, uh, and the same, uh, you know, the first generation, we will meet Jesus, right? But the first generation of Christians probably had much more reason to put their hope and vision of the future on the second coming than us. Their lives were way, way worse than ours, right? And so um, I have this kind of three things I want you to think about Roman Empire when you think about it. So if you can, I don't know if you know what Imagination Station is. I know my children grew up on Imagination Station. If you do not know it, search it. It will teach you a lot of good things. Anyway, so turn your Imagination Station and travel 2,000 years back. Right. Let's look at the Roman Empire or Roman Republic as it was built at first. The only thing that you can think that was good at that time was this idea of Pax Romana, which was uh, peace and the, uh, peace in empire. Right? They they governed with the iron fist, and mostly it actually wasn't really true all the time and everywhere. There were rebellions, wars, and rumors of wars throughout the empire all the time. But overall, the empire was stable, right? But the whole life in Rome was centered about, uh, uh, around worshiping different deities and gods. Uh, you know, it could be the family gods, empire gods, or trade gods. And actually, it got really ridiculous. I find out that they had gods like for almost anything, you know, god of picking up chairs after church, you know. They actually did have a goddess of doors and hinges. Her name was Cardia, right? Or the goddess of sewers of Rome. 
her name was Chloe China. But the thing is, it had really, why they did that? Because it really had really practical application in the Roman Empire. You wanna actively participate in some trade, you have to worship our God. You know, if you wanna be an ironsmith, worship gods of ironsmiths. If you wanna be, I don't know, fixed door hinges, worship cardia, right? And so it brought, uh, uh, it put Christian artisans and, you know, smiths uh, into really uncomfortable place, right? They had to choose either to participate and worship those gods or worship Jesus and live life, you know, not being able to sell legally or do legal things. So it was hard. A lot of them end up being poor and outside of, you know, acceptable Roman society. Uh, uh, another thing that happened is, you know, Christianity at the beginning enjoyed the special status of Judaism in Roman Empire. Jews were not compelled to worship Caesar, who was God king of Roman Empire. Right? So, but when the Christianity separated from Judaism, uh, worshiping another God king, right? Jesus is our God and our king. Worshiping another God king in Roman Empire was punishable by death. So again, it was a hard choice that they had to make. And don't let me start it on Christian, I mean Christian, on Roman views on marital relationship. So uh, I don't know if you heard of Tim Chalice. He has some ministry as well. He's a Canadian pastor. And I read an article uh, about it on his webpage. He lays out Roman sexual ethics in pretty plain terms that I would not repeat here. And actually, I don't know if there is a quote there. My wife said, don't even read that in church. And this is like really, really, really toned down of what was happening in the Roman Empire, right? It was tied to the idea of masculinity and dominance. Nothing else matter. You take what you want, who you want, when you want. If it's person lo uh, is lower social status, nothing else matter. It was terrible. And we are only shocked by today's confusion in this area because Christianity was born into the same confusion, but they changed it. They changed it. It did not take them one generation. They fought and changed it. They created the sexual morality that we live in right now, but they did not have it when they were when Christianity was born. And so the same author says following. He says, this is hardly the first time Christians have lived out sexual ethics that clashed with the world around them. In fact, the church was burst and the New Testament delivered into a world utterly opposed to Christian morality. Almost all of the New Testament texts dealing with sexuality was written, were written to Christians living in predominantly Roman cities. This Christian ethic did not come to a society that needed only a slight realignment or society eager to hear its message. No, Christian ethics clashed harshly with Roman sexual morality. Matthew Ruger, he's a Lutheran pastor, wrote a whole book about it, and it's called Sexual Morality in Christless World. And he says about early Christians, our early Christian ancestors did not confess biblical chastity in a safe culture that naturally agreed with them. The sexual morality they taught and practiced stood out as unnatural to the Roman world. Christian sexual ethics were not merely different from Roman ethics, they were utterly against Roman ideals of virtue and love. And then he adds, the first Christians were men and women of great courage. Confessing Christian morality always requires, requires that spirit of bravery. So, you know, it is not surprised that we are here where we're here, and it's not surprised that we're feeling pressure or uncomfortable in this culture. Right, that is normal. And Peter actually says in First Peter 4.12, he talks to the first generation Christians. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It is normal. 
we are in the world. So we are okay. Just need to realign our perspective a little bit, maybe. Right? So um, I'm going to try to conclude my <laughs> thinking, I guess, uh, my thoughts. Uh, but uh, And so this is my conclusions. Uh, and I don't value my conclusions as much as yours. All this information gave you to think about, talk, and discuss, right? We do have country in front of us to take care. But here are my kind of four or five, I don't remember, four, four ideas how we can be engaged in this culture or what can we do if it's our perspective. So uh, number one, let's recognize the loss of influence in this culture. Uh, in this culture. So let's recognize the loss of influence in this culture. In many ways, the United States needs both revival and reformation. And what should we do? Let's preach the gospel. Uh, C.S. Lewis, if you ever heard of him, uh, once said that the most political action you can make is to share gospel with your neighbor and lead him or her to Christ. I mean, it's only logical. As Dutch Sheet said, the born-again Christians do not need to be forced following God's law or morals or ethics, right? It's natural. And so the more Christians you have in a country, the more moral the country will be. It's as simple as that. Number two, let's prepare the next generation. So, uh, yeah, one of my friends who's a Christian counselor once said uh, that whoever gives hope leads, right? And so I think we need to give hope to the next generation. That's why I like that song that uh, we sung at the end. I was a witness to, to a conversation once between two young boys, and it went something like that. One of the boys, you know, like on fire for Christ, he's like, hey, Jesus is coming soon. You know, he's all excited. And his brother is like, or he's like, looking at him, he's like, well, I hope not. He's like, I still want to ride my bikes. <laughs> so, um, and so the point is, right, so the conversation was much bigger, but it kind of struck me, right? So one of the guys, one of those boys, he does not have the vision for this world anymore. He's like, I just want to be there. Right? That's it. Uh, and the other one's like, well, you know, what about my life? You know, what's, what happens with my life? What, what, and uh, obviously there is, we can talk about the vision of the heaven, what he had, which probably wasn't necessarily right. But it struck me as one person looking for hope. He was looking for hope for the future. Right, so, uh, and many young people look at the past generations and think, and I actually heard them say it, you lived your life, uh, and now you're taking away mine. You know, now you just want Jesus to come back and, you know, be gone, you know, in your life. But, like, how about my life? Not necessarily right perspective, but it is the feeling that they have. So let's give the young people hope for the future, right? I see a generation rising up to take their place. So let's train them to take their place. Teach them how to fight in this spiritual war by discipling them, inviting them into our lives and taking part in theirs. Number three, let's not prematurely expect Jesus. And this one is might be hard to explain what I mean, but when I'm studying the Bible and I look through the Proverbs or admonitions in the Bible concerning the end times, uh, I see that in all of them, people had something to do to the very end. Right? There was, I didn't find even one proverb where, you know, Jesus or apostle would say, buy 25 years supply of food and wait for Jesus. He actually told proverb that is opposite to that, right? If you know that, he said, there was a man who had really great harvest. And he's like, super, I'm going to build bigger houses, storehouses, going to fill it up with grain, and my soul will enjoy to the rest of my life. And Jesus rebuked him and said, you have no idea when you're going to die. I'm going to take your life today. So think about Syria and Turkey. The war in Ukraine, 
took maybe over 100,000 people so far in a year. Losses in Turkey in one day might reach 50,000. People who lived in total safety, comfortable, not expecting that at all, right? We just do not know. So, uh, but I do want to commend your church because I see how you guys reaching out beyond yourself, right? You're giving out yourself in a community here and, you know, in example of Ukraine or other countries, you're reaching out and I'm really proud, you know, be having a relationship with you as a church. Anyway, so let's expect Jesus' Jesus's return, but be busy while doing it. And if he come tomorrow, which would be a great day, or in a hundred years, we would know that we didn't waste time that he has given us. Like I said, first Peter or second Peter says that this spirit of waiting is an opportunity. It's opportunity, and opportunity needs to be taken. Number four. <laughs> Number four. <laughs> Let's think about the world as our backyard. Okay, so what I mean by that? So I have this picture in my mind. A beautiful house, you know, amazing front yard and backyard, you know. I think about the owner of the house, like person probably spending time, you know, effort, money, resources into upkeep, mowing the lawn in time, you know, feeding it, you know, making sure that all the, you know, everything's clean and pretty. Don't have a better explanation. <laughs> so, uh, but, I, and I think like, okay, so if I have this house and it's so beautiful and so, you know, perfect, but the street in the front of me is dirty, like uncapped. That kind of would, you know, ruin the whole thing, right? Like, if you drive on this, like, broken road, you know, your car is m hardly making it. Uh, we actually did drive on road like this. Our car, I thought, is going to fall apart. We went to look at some maybe property or something. I thought, we're not going to make it back, right? So, uh, I mean, the whole experience, the whole point of keeping your house clean would kind of be ruined if the road or, like, your street is uncapped and, you know, terrible and stuff like this. And I think it's a natural desire then for this owner to take care of that street in the front of him, to be involved or to get neighbors involved. Hey, let's clean up. Let's make it level or something like this. And then I thought, well, wouldn't be the same logic or can we apply the same logic to like a region, right? A region where we live. Like wouldn't be like, you know, you drive through this dangerous region, you know, there's no street lights, it's all crazy hard. Then you come, oh, and there's this, you know, beautiful street and beautiful house. That would make no sense, right? So my logic in this or my, my reason for using this example, let's think about United States you know, the same way. If we are taking care of our houses and our backyards, and I've seen you guys are amazing at it. I've seen some really amazing houses. Let's, let's move this logic to the street, to the county, to the city, to United States. Let's not turn back on the United States and say, that's it, Jesus, just take me, you know, and in a sense to the world. Uh, if we look at the church, you know, we see the many times churches compared with ancient Israel. And the history of Israel had some really low points. I don't know if you studied it. So one of those low points was they're taken in exile to Babylon. So, you know, they, it wasn't volunteer, they didn't want to go there, but they were dragged into Babylon and they were stuck there for 70 years. What, and like, if you would think, like, what would you do if you were stuck in a forced exile for 70 years? Right? But Jesus, or I mean, God doesn't give them the option to discuss it or think. He actually clearly says what he expects them to do. Uh, let's look at Jeremiah 29, 4, 7. It says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. So two exiles, people who were forced to go to Babylon. He says, build houses, settle down, 
plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So, you know, do you know that how Apostle Peter was calling Rome in his epistles? Babylon. Do you know how Book of Revelation calls this whole system, the worldly system that we're in, the fallen world? Babylon, right? And so we are, as ancient Israel, live in this modern version of Babylon with its multiple gods and perversions. And we are here only temporary. We totally recognize that. But I think our calling is still the same. Build houses and settle down. Don't turn your back on America or its future. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Participate in the life of this Babylon. Marry and have sons and daughters. That is a clear indication about thinking forward into the future. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters into marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. So plan not only for your future, but think about the next generation and even the one after next. That is incredible, right? They, they were told you're going to be there only for 70 years. I mean, you can just, you know, kind of hang out on the streets, you know, for 70 years. That's not what God told them. Increase, do not decrease. Also, seek peace and prosperity for America. Pray to the Lord for America because if it prospers, you will too. You too will prosper. So, you know, let's not turn back on America or on the next generation. Even if some battles were lost, the war is already won by Jesus. And the next generation might do better than ours, right? You know, and so to finish up, I just want to say, you know, I do not want just future generation think about hope, right? I have future generation in my family. Uh, but I want us to recognize that we have hope right now. Right? At any moment, Jesus might come or Jesus might change the situation, right? The idea of the gospel, that we have this good news in Babylon, in a broken world that struggles to find its identity, purpose, why we're here, what, you know, what is all this thing around us? You know, the good news is that God is with us. Jesus is with us right now, right? It's his promise, the promise of the Holy Spirit in his presence. And so with kind of this idea of hope, not only in the future, but also right now, you know, I would want to finish this. And also say, if you do not know Jesus or don't have that hope, talk and find people who do. Because that will change your life. Uh, I'm not going to pray. I do want to ask, though, the worship team come out and sing that last song, if it's possible, because I do believe it gives hope to both current generation and future generation. Thank you, guys. <laughs>